um, with the Gospel of Mark, uh, not the Mark that's currently found in your Bible, uh, which has some extra verses, but the Mark that the ancient manuscripts indicate was the original ending. And you may remember if you were here last week that the Gospel of Mark appears to have originally ended in a very kind of peculiar way. The women come to the empty tomb. Uh, they behold a man who's described in such a way it's very clear it's an angel. And do you remember their reaction? Scared witless, okay? And the angel says to them, go and tell the disciples. And Mark's gospel originally ended with, and they left, and they told no one. Why? For they were terrified. No. Now, later, and we'll look at this in a few weeks, later tradition began to find that a little bit unsatisfactory and put some uh, no less than four different endings to Mark. We'll get there. But today what we want to do is, is to look at um, the second gospel, which is the gospel of Matthew. And if we do that, this is a good time just to stop for a second and remind ourselves of, of a few things, three in particular. One of them is uh, Matthew is not Mark, is not Luke, is not John, right? They're very different. Uh, that's true of the gospels as a whole, but it's particularly true of the resurrection narrative. Uh, they're not consistent. And if you want to give yourself a really good headache, try to make them consistent and just work on that for a while. Uh, so it's best not to try to harmonize them, although some people try to do that, and if that's your gig, welcome to it. Uh, they reflect different traditions and experiences. One of the things that stands out in the New Testament is not everybody had the same experience. There was a variety of experiences. Some seemed to experience Jesus in a very palpable way in the flesh. Some seemed to have experienced him in a, in a bodily form that was very different, spiritual. Some seem to have understood the resurrection experience more as a visionary kind of experience. Those are all there, and we will look at all of them. Our goal, I think, is to allow each gospel to speak with its own voice. So this morning, we want to listen to the voice of Matthew. Now, because Matthew uses Mark, well, we'll talk about that relationship. But we want to hear what, what Matthew has to say and why Matthew tells the story the way he does. Matthew tells the story in such a way that it is dissimilar from any other gospel, and so we want to hear that. Uh, also helpful to remember when we get to these resurrection narratives, I know this is, this is hard for some of us, <laughs> we leave history and science behind, okay? You just can't put this into a calculator and crunch it out the way you can of something in science. We are entering the realm of faith and experience. Very, very real, but very, very different. Um, and again, a variety of experiences and a variety of uh, faith claims. We enter the realm of what is called narrative or story. Uh, we know, for example, that the gospel writers are just that. They're writers. They're authors. And what does a writer or author do? They tell a story. And they tell a story in their way. Every, every writer has their own particular way of doing that. Uh, when they tell the story, they interpret the meaning of the resurrection for us so that when we look through the eyes of Matthew or Luke, it's a little bit different perspective. And actually, uh, in, in the human body, having one eye is better than two, right? Well, if your depth perception, having four Gospels, the early church said, was better than one. There were some attempts to reduce the number of Gospels from four to one, numerous attempts. The early church rejected all those because the thought was we're better off and our experience is much richer if we have this variety. And so we have been bequeathed that. 
Um, behind the narratives, behind the stories, and there are about 25 of them that are either narrated or referenced in the New Testament. Uh, there are genuine experiences of the risen Jesus, but each writer is going to craft, each writer is going to shape the story in his own way. Now, the reason I share that with you is this is nowhere more palpably present, uh, clear than in the Gospel of Matthew. Particularly if you compare the Gospel of Matthew with the Gospel of Luke, I mean Mark, which is what we're doing this morning. Now, the main reason for believing this is one that the scholars have known for well over 100 years, and that is that there appears to be a literary relationship between some of the Gospels. You're aware of that, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, one eye, one vision. They seem to be related to each other. And scholars working in this think they figured out what the relationship is. It's overwhelmingly believed that Mark is the first gospel. He's not the first writer. Who would that be? Paul. Paul writes a generation earlier, back in the 50s, maybe in the late 40s. Uh, but Paul does not narrate. He makes references, but does not narrate the story. The first story we have of Jesus is actually Mark. It appears that Mark is either writing just before or at or just after the destruction of Jerusalem. So he's writing about 65 to 70, somewhere in there. Uh, and the other Gospels are going to follow a generation later. Mark and Luke appear to be written about the year 85, so, you know, a generation later. Now, here's what really gets interesting. Over 90% of Mark is found in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's not just found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's identical. And it's identical word for word, paragraphs at a time in Greek. And Greek was not the language being spoken in Palestine by the Jews. Now, what does that tell you? The only way that can happen is that, there's, is that if somebody is actually looking at a written document and copying part of it to use in a later document. So the broad consensus is Mark was actually used by Luke and used by Matthew, and it becomes the template. So Matthew, as he begins to create his gospel, he's got the gospel of Mark. He likes a lot of what's there. He wants to work with it, but there's some things he does not like about it. What would be one of the things he would not like? The ending. <laughs> so we want to work on that a lot. Plus, for Matthew, Jesus is a teacher, a rabbi. And Mark talks all the time about Jesus. Teach, 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 and gives us almost nothing. Now, Matthew can fix that because Matthew has other sources in which there's an immense amount of teaching. So which gospel is the Sermon on the Mount in? Matthew, bring it in. And the uh, Sermon on the Mount is only one of five discourses that Matthew brings in. Like how many books is, are there in the Torah? You know, there's five, five books, the Torah, the law. And Jesus is going to be the new Moses, and he's going to have five books. of you know, There's five teaching sections of Matthew. Matthew's going to bring it in. So it's a template. But it's a template he wants to adapt. He wants to change. He wants to fit his own needs. For example, one of the things we, uh, we think we know is that when Matthew is writing in about the year 85, there is this huge struggle going on between an emergent Judaism post-destruction of the temple and the emergent church. And some of the emergent Jews are saying some very nasty things about the emergent Christians. So some of the emergent Christians are saying very nasty things about the emergent Jews as well. It's a family dispute, okay? Out of the ashes of Second Temple Judaism will arise two of the world's faiths, Christianity 
Judaism about the same time. And first of all, they're meeting in the same synagogue, and it gets a little dicey. Matthew is going to omit some of Mark's details, as will Luke. Uh, for example, Mark is gritty. Mark will tell you that Jesus really got ticked off at people. He's going to tell you that, that, that Jesus felt all these emotions and feelings. Mark will tell you that sometimes when Jesus wanted to heal, he couldn't do it. He had to try twice. Cutting room floor, cutting room floor, cutting room floor. Okay. Matthew will clean that up. Ma Mark is much more gutsy. He's going to add some things to offer. He's going to craft, you know, craft the presentation he's going to do. So this is to say that this significantly changes the way the empty tomb story is told. We have an empty tomb story in Ma uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. They're different. But Matthew goes further. He also wants to add four scenes. He's not going to end with the women leaving in terror and not saying anything. He's going to add four scenes. He adds two about the tomb. One, that there's some guards placed at the tomb. And there's a real reason he wants to do that. And he's also going to mention uh, this deal about the Jewish authorities and some of the things that the Jewish authorities are claiming about the resurrection. That's an issue in the year 85. And it's an issue for, for Matthew's community. He needs to address that. You know, Mark didn't deal with that. Back 20 years earlier, it wasn't an issue. It's an issue in Matthew's time, so he has to deal with it. He also is going to add two appearances of the risen Jesus. He's going to add one to the women at the tomb, which we did not find in, in Mark, if we have it. Uh, this is going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to add one uh, in Galilee. And in, as we're going to find out, in Matthew, anything significant happens where? On a mountain. Because where did Moses get the Torah? On a mountain. Where was God revealed? On a mountain. We're at Sinai. On a mountain. You know, all those kind of. Where was the burning bush? On, you know, it goes on and on. So we begin with the empty tomb story, Matthew's version of this. Let's just take a look at it. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, that would be? Sunday, Easter, Easter Sunday, Easter morning. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. We already see a little bit difference here with Mark. Suddenly, there's a great earthquake. Did we have that in Mark? We did not. For the angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone. By the way, that is the closest thing we have in the New Testament to an actual appearance of the resurrection itself. We're not told that. We're not told that Jesus came out or anything, but this is as close as we get. Suddenly about that in a second uh, his appearance was like lightning his clothing white as snow for fear of him the guards shook and they became like dead men but the angel said to the women do not be afraid that was we had that in mark correctly now matthew adds some stuff i know that you were looking for jesus who was crucified uh, he is not here we're still tracking mark uh, he has been raised as he said, and there Matthew now adds some new stuff. Come, see the place where he lay. Go quickly, tell the disciples. Come, see, he has been raised from the dead and indeed is going ahead of you to Galilee. We're still tracking Mark. There you will see him. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. That's news. And ran to tell his disciples. But we're very far from Mark right now, you take Mark as it ends originally with verse 8, and you take Matthew, and you put them side by side in this thing, and th they really are striking. It's, it's very two different depictions of this event. 
Uh, Matthew's completely rewritten the narrative. Uh, some of the changes are, are very, very minor. We'll talk about those. Some are really significant. We'll dive back in. One of the changes is that it, uh, Matthew seems to have a little different tradition about the women. How many were there at the uh, in Mark? Three. How many in Matthew? We lost one in there somewhere. Okay. Uh, Salome is missing, and it could be as simple as Matthew's tradition, the way it came to him, was just a variation of the story. Easy. There also could be a theological reason for this. Matthew is, is Matthew and John are the two most Jewish of the Gospels. And within Jewish tradition, there's this tradition called the two witnesses. Okay. One witness testifies against you, can you be convicted? No. But in Jewish tradition, if you've got two people going to testify against you, you are in trouble. Or if two people will defend you, you're in good shape. And that's found in Deuteronomy. It's part of the law. Two witnesses make the testimony solid, believable. Matthew, multiple times in his gospel, where other gospels not mentioned it was one or three or stuff, Matthew will always say two. And so one of the things going on is that Matthew may be trying to say this testimony I is, is valid. It's, it's worthwhile. It's worth listening to. Uh, at the Jesus' trial, we have uh, two witnesses. Matthew also rewrites the reason why the women came to the tomb. Now, remembering last week, why did the women go to the tomb on Easter morning? Came out the body, okay? They brought spices, you know? Jesus had been buried. He'd been crucified on the eve of Sabbath. And by Jewish law, you have to basically get him off the cross and buried before the sun sets because their day begins from sunset to sunset. And the day he died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so they were very rushed. They were not able to do all the things they wanted to do. So the women, the first day they can, they can't do it on the Sabbath. So they have to wait till Sunday. So they go early that morning. Now, Matthew, they've not come for that reason. It has nothing to do with a dead body. That's not what they're looking for. Uh, they come for an entirely different reason. And what Matthew says is they come to see the tomb. And we're just left, you know, they, are they really looking for a body? Anyway, that's just not clear in Matthew. Matthew is also going to downplay uh, something that Mark sort of lifted up, which is the shock and the, the disbelief that the women had. Uh, Mark told us the women fled the tomb in terror, that they said nothing to anyone because they were terrified. I'm kind of with them myself. Uh, Matthew, the women are exemplary disciples. They're presented in such a way, if you want to know how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and deal with the resurrection, just read the next few verses, okay? Because Matthew wants to present them. He, by the way, he does that with the disciples as a whole. In, in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are just dunderheads, okay? They're the disciples. They just never quite get it, you know. <laughs> Matthew, in Matthew, they, they, get, they come off looking a lot better, you know, so... Uh, you read Mark, you get a little depressed. Read Matthew, you feel much better. Okay. <laughs> this case, they do what the angel asked. Mark specifically said they didn't. Matthew specifically said, oh, yeah, they did. Okay. Not only did they tell the disciples, they ran to tell the disciples. They're excited to do this, and they have joy. So a little different uh, depiction. Now, unlike Mark, Matthew goes on to tell us that these women, and in, th in this, Matthew agrees with Luke and agrees with John, that the women did, in fact, see the risen Lord at the tomb. It's not in Mark. It's in the other three Gospels. Matthew goes on to tell us that when they see the risen Jesus, 
They have an interesting reaction. Remember in Mark, we end with fear and fleeing. In Matthew, we end with worship. It's interesting in Matthew. Every single time anybody sees the risen Lord in Matthew, what are they doing? Worshiping. Because in Matthew, that is the appropriate response when you meet or you encounter the risen Jesus. Okay? He's going to tell us two, th- two times. First, women at the king- tomb, what do they do? They worship. Now we're going to go to Galilee, the disciples. They see the risen Lord. What do they do? They worship. They help bring their homes there. Um, everyone does that. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. Matthew now is going to insert a whole section into the empty tomb story that's not in Mark. And by the way, it's not Luke or John, or John either. This is unique to Matthew. Uh, more than any gospel, Matthew wants us to understand and to stress the spectacular and the supernatural at that event that day. And so the section that follows, he does some very interesting things. Uh, now, in other gospels, uh, you have a couple of versions. One is the women get to the tomb and they realize, ooh, big rock. What are we going to do? Some other traditions, they come and, it, and it's rolled away and they go, ooh, who did that? Okay. Now, in Matthew, they do not have to wonder because they're going to actually see it happen. Okay, and, it, and more. I mean, this is, this is, this is interesting. Matthew begins by getting our attention, and, and if, if you're reading Greek, this will just sort of jump off the page. The, the word he says, suddenly, or the word, lo, it literally is, behold, you know, grabs your attention. Something is happening. First thing that happens, you get earthquakes. Does that get your attention? Matthew likes earthquakes. You should live in Southern California. Okay. Uh, <laughs> do you remember what happens when Jesus dies? Earthquake, you know, the tombs open and stuff. So Matthew likes, by the way, Matthew uh, likes earthquakes for a reason. Earthquakes are Old Testament. There's a series of earthquakes in the Old Testament. It carries a lot of meaning. Then we have an angel of the Lord appears. What do we have in Mark? Yeah, but who appeared? Yeah. It was an angel, but Mark's language is a young man appeared. And if you read the, particularly the book of Daniel, you know that's particularly when you start describing a young man dressed in a white outfit. He's not a televangelist. You know, he's, he's, an, he's an angel. Okay. The angel of the Lord appears. Soldiers knocked on their keisters. Bam, down, out cold. Okay. Then the angel rolls back the stone and sits on it. Now, that's how you make an entrance. Okay. That is how you make an entrance. You get the feel. I mean, just wham, bam, pow. You know, just all kinds of energy flying. Now, the entire narrative for anybody that's ever spent any time in the Old Testament not only is it, is it story, but it's symbolic. It is fraught with symbolism. I mean, Old Testament scriptures just start jumping out at you all the time. For example, every single thing he's just told us comes from the Old Testament. It's like the book of Revelation. You cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you know the Old Testament, because where does every single image in Revelation come from? Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Exodus, Leviticus, all, that, all those. So Matthew begins with an earthquake, okay? You may remember offhand, any particular earthquake stand out in the Old Testament? Sodom and Gomorrah does not count. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's part, it's the language of what's called theophany. In the Old Testament, when God appears, when God is revealed, when God is made known, 99.9% of the time we have an earthquake. 
in particularly one place, the Exodus story. Remember when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? Okay, at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire while the whole mountain shook violently. So in the narrative of Exodus, earthquake and smoke and fire are symbols that, that God is a God is present, God is merciful. In Jewish tradition, later tradition, this becomes the gold standard, okay? If you want to tell a story when God is present, what do you need to have? Got to have an earthquake. So, Isaiah 29. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts. Oh, how will I know that it's the Lord of hosts? Well, thunder, earthquake, and a lot of noise, okay? And then you will know it's God. Over in the book of Haggai. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again I will shake the heavens. I will shake the earth. I will shake the sea. I will shake the dry land, and I'm going to shake the nations. Okay. So the language of earthquake is the language of theophany. It's a symbolic way of saying at this empty tomb on that morning, in spite of whatever else was going on, God was there, God was present, and God was being known, made manifest. When the angel appears, it's no longer the young man who we know to be an angel because we know the Old Testament. Matthew tells us explicitly it's an angel. You know, he didn't want to take a chance and not misunderstand. It's not just an angel. This one came from where? Direct, you know, just showed up on the scene. The angel's attire is upscaled. And again, a lot of symbolism here. We no longer have the white robe. Well, we do have a white robe, but it's white as snow. And it's like lightning. And again, those two phrases with this quick new Old Testament scriptures, you should start popping left and right. Like lightning. Again, Matthew is drawing on the Exodus imagery, the presence of God. Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. Why do you think there was thunder and lightning up there? Okay, God is present, as well as a thick cloud. Consistent imagery that we get for God's presence. White as snow, another image for God's presence, this time from the book of Daniel. By the way, Matthew likes Daniel. He likes Daniel 7. He'll go to Daniel 7 multiple times. He goes twice in this material we're looking at today. 7-9. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and the ancient one, that's uh, Daniel's language for God. He refers to him as the ancient one. I don't know if that's where we get the old images. Remember the old images of the beard and the old man? The you know, maybe that's it. I don't know. Or maybe it was just my Sunday school teacher. Uh, the ancient one took his throne, his clothing. There it is. White as snow. So when something's described as being white as snow, biblically, it's, it's, a, it's a manifestation of God. For Matthew, the resurrection is a theophany. It is a revelation of God's presence. And if God's going to show up, what is the only appropriate thing you should do? Besides hit the deck. <laughs> Worship. Okay. So that sets up the next story. That's where Matthew wants to go. This is now the appearance of Jesus to the women. And by the way, this is not just the appearance of Jesus to man because he's no longer Jesus to man. Because in Jewish tradition, who do you worship? You worship God. Okay. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. The most understated statement of all time. And they came to him and took hold of his feet. They don't run fleeing, as you might expect from Mark. They run to him. Grab hold of his feet. Worship him. Then Jesus said to them, 
do not be afraid. Every time God shows up in the Bible, God has to say, don't be afraid. Why? They're terrified. Okay, I'm with them. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where it all started. They will see me there. Are they going to see him in Jerusalem? No. Uh, In Luke, you're going to get a revelation to the disciples in Jerusalem. You do not get that in Matthew. You want to see Jesus, where are you going to go? Go north. Go up to Galilee. They take hold of his feet. Now, lots of symbolism there, but probably one of the main things that's going on here, the Jewish tradition is very, very physical. Where does the belief in a physical resurrection of the body come from? It didn't come from the Greeks, let me tell you that. It's a Jewish belief. It's a palpable thing. The, Jew, uh, the uh, Greeks believe in the what? The soul. You know, that, that sort of amorphous thing, and that, that has become a part of our tradition. So Matthew is a very, very Jewish gospel. Matthew's writing in Greek, but he's writing to a congregation of Christians living about the year 85, many of whom, probably the vast majority of whom, were Jews who believed in Jesus and had become Christians. They're probably Jews who still think of themselves as Jews. Matter of fact, they want to be Torah observant. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Jesus can say, I have not come to change one iota of the law. I have come to fulfill the law. And your righteousness must be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Why? If you're a good Jesus follower, what are are you? You're a good Jew. You're a good Torah observant Jew. And that's that's Matthew's community. Uh, He's going to stress that Jesus is physically present. Jesus is not just a spirit or a vision or a ghost. And uh, we have several places. His his presence is real. His presence is physical. It's palpable. Uh, Now, we just have to acknowledge that is not important for Mark, who writes primarily to Gentiles who believe in the soul. So physical resurrection is not that big. It's not important to Paul. Matter of fact, Paul writing in Corinthians, remember he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He talks about a spiritual body. You know, it's not important. It is important for Matthew. Matthew's very, very Jewish in this respect. Um, also, when you turn to Luke and John, you'll see this too. Remember, Luke, Jesus eats fish. That's just an interesting story. You know, Jesus has a fish fry with the disciples in the lake. John, Thomas is invited to put his hands in Jesus' hands. All three of these traditions. Very Jewish saying that the, the resurrected body is physical. The disciples are to go to Galilee, and in Matthew, uh, the disciples are not going to have any encounter with Jesus in the south. Uh, if you want to see Jesus, you've got to go north. And it, it gets really interesting here because for Matthew, Galilee is not geography. For us, it's geography. Where's Galilee? Well, it's north, you know, north of Samaria, of course. For Matthew, it's a place of great theological significance. And he lets us know this because he doesn't refer to Galilee. He uses a compound little phrase called Galilee of the Gentiles. Now that is a term that comes to us from the book of Isaiah. And it's a term that John will not use, Luke will not use, Mark will not use, Paul will not use, Matthew will use. Which tells us something, doesn't it? that it's important to Matthew. Um, Of the four gospel writers, only he does it. It's where Jesus began his ministry, and this is where they have to meet then the risen Lord. It's in Galilee that the disciples are now going to receive what is called the Great Commission. Remember that? 
go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Uh, and this is, again, they got to go to Galilee of the Gentiles. And what's their task? To proclaim the message to the Gentiles. Uh, because Matthew's community apparently is also made of people who are not of Jewish heritage. It's a, it's a mixed congregation. The guards report. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say, his disciples came by night and they are body snatchers. So they stole the body away while we were asleep. Now, what would that explain? Why the tomb is empty. So it's an alternative explanation for why the tomb is empty. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day, which tells you that Matthew is not writing in the time period. He's writing later. He's saying that story's still being told. You're 85, decades later. And matter of fact, it's become a big issue. The Jews, he refers to, now in Mark we have the chief priests and the elders, and in Matthew it's been sort of turned into the Jews. And again, this is another indication that probably we're dealing with a, a later time period. Um, Matthew's narrative presents a striking contrast then between, on Easter morning what we have is we have two reports going to go out. One is going to be from the women, and the other is going to be from the guards. And these are two all very different understandings of what Easter is. The women are going to say what? He's risen. The guards are going to say body snatchers, Okay that they just simply taken the body. So it's a big hoax. One of the other popular ones, well, I think the women got confused. They went to the wrong tomb. That was also out there. Okay. Uh, two messages go out, one true, one false, one verified by an angel and verified by the risen Jesus. We'll see that in just a moment. The other verified people who are doing it for a large sum of money. In the Gospel of Matthew, if you ever want to have anything of suspicious nature, what is the motive? It's in Matthew that Judas asked for money to betray Jesus. Okay, So suspect motive. Matthew again reminds us, he's writing for a later period. The disciples stole his body. He then adds, this story is still being told. He's done that twice now, reminding us that we're dealing with a later issue. Matthew's time, the church, the gospel message is being attacked. The story is being told that there is no resurrection. The disciples stole the body or some other alternative. Very important. Matter of fact, you can say this. One of the reasons and one of the things that drives Matthew's shaping of the, the resurrection narrative is he wants to combat the false testimony that's out there. He's, he has to address this. He has to encounter it. And, and he's got some powerful tools in his arsenal. He's got Jewish tradition. He's got Jewish scripture. So he wants to bring into play all the most powerful things he can to counter this. He wants to say loudly and proudly, the resurrection did, in fact, happen. It is not a lie. Uh, the women didn't get lost. You know, They didn't go to the wrong tomb. By the way, that was out there. Uh, they're not running around stealing corpses. That's not what this is about. But more importantly, and this is the heart of Matthew's presentation, what happened on Easter morning reveals who God is and reveals God's heel. And then we get the closing section, the final section, the Great Commission. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, which tells you two things. One, the women told them, and two, they actually followed directions for once. Uh, then they saw him. They worshipped him. 
in Matthew, that's just a recurring theme. Some doubted. Even in Matthew. Some human nature, okay? This the resurrection Easter story is a struggle. Thomas is going to have the same issue, right? When Mary Magdalene goes and tells the disciples she saw the Lord, what's their first reaction? They laugh at her. Ha! Yeah, right, right. That's going to happen. Yeah. Jesus came and said to them, All authority on he- in heaven and on earth has been given to us, granted to me. Go, therefore, make disciples. Very famous passage we all know. To all nations. That's that, that language you pick up from Isaiah. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then, of course, with that, Matthew comes to an end. Now, in Matthew, Jesus never appears to the disciples in Judea, only in Galilee, only on the mountain. It's in Matthew, it's going to be important what's going to happen on the mountain. Everything that's important happens there. Sermon on the Mount? Mountain. Transfiguration story? Mountain. Final appearance to the disciples? Mountain. Great Commission, by the way, I can add about 40 more to these, okay, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's just significant things happen on mountaintops. And again, the reason is obvious. One of the things that Jesus wants us, uh, Matthew wants us to understand, he understands as a Jewish Christian that Jesus is the new Messiah, the new Moses, giving the new law, the new Torah to a new Israel. And that's just the way he understands Jesus of the new lawgiver. Ma- uh, John will come close to this. Jewish tradition, the mountain is a, a place of revelation. Uh, by the way, remember when uh, Eli, uh, Elijah the prophet got in trouble? Where did he go? Went to the mountain and God said, go home. Uh, you go there to encounter God. You go there to receive the Torah. In Matthew, Jesus, the new Moses, is going to give us the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're looking forward to this Sunday. They worship. It's interesting. Jesus is no longer, uh, earlier in Matthew, we don't get Jesus being worshipped. Pre-resurrection, we don't get Jesus being worshipped because he's human. Now we're being told he has become more than human. He's the exalted Lord. He is to be worshipped. So this, and Jesus then says a very interesting thing. Some people would say this kind of thing has to be much, much, much later, maybe Constantine, 4th century. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, Matthew does not have an ascension story. We don't have a story like Luke does or Acts does or there's actually been one added to Mark where where Jesus ascends to heaven. But he uses the language that suggests that Jesus has ascended, is now reigning with God. Uh, And as he did earlier with the angel, he's going right to uh, Daniel 7. I think we'll find very familiar ground here. As I watched in the night visions... I saw one like a human being coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. So this this Son of Man is presented before God in heaven. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Sound vaguely familiar? Okay. Jesus is claiming that. Matthew wants us to understand Jesus is that Son of Man. The one that, that, that Daniel spoke of, that is in fact Jesus. He's not, which means Jesus is not just risen from the dead. Jesus is more. So the, me, the Easter story is not just about a resurrection. It's about Jesus ascending to the Father 
and being given special authority with the Father. He's exalted. He has authority on heaven and on the earth. And then we then end with the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. The words nations, of course, as you know, refers to the Gentiles. The Jews are very simple. It's us and them, the Jews and the nations. Nations is everybody else. So the message of Jesus, and you can now say the message about Jesus, which is the Christian proclamation, is no longer just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember that phrase? It's a Matthew phrase. Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's now become the mission of the church, which is what we inherited. And if you know your Old Testament, that was the promise given to Abraham. Blessing to the nations. That is the call given by Isaiah. A light to the nations. We exist. We end with baptism. By the way, where did the story of Jesus start? Baptism. Full circle. We've come around to where the story all began. We had John baptizing across the Jordan for the forgiveness of sins. In the Jordan symbolism, we have Jesus' disciples preaching Jesus is risen for the forgiveness of sins. And then we have in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that sound like? Sounds like the doctrine of the Trinity, doesn't it? It's not in the sense of full-blown doctrine. That's going to take probably till 6-700 A.D. before that gets ironed out. But it's Trinitarian. Trinitarian language, Trinitarian formula. Uh, And this is, by the way, not something that Matthew thought up. Can you think of an earlier Trinitarian reference? How about the year 49? The Apostle Paul. He's using that language. 49 or early 50s. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. We use it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit, be with all. Have you heard that? Is that a doctrine of the Trinity? No. Is it Trinitarian language? Absolutely. Years before Matthew, until Matthew picked up his tradition. Teach them. Uh, The disciples are called to continue what Jesus did. And for Matthew, Jesus is first and last his teacher. That's why we have the Sermon on the Mount there. He's a rabbi. And they, it's not doctrinal. Now, in the Gospel of John, it's important that we believe, right? We believe. In the Gospel of Matthew, that's not quite as important. What's important is that we obey. Very, very Jewish. Not doctrinal. It's very, very life-centered. I'm with you always. And now, this is, is this, we end with this, and it's, it's fascinating. Mark ends with this. Jesus has died, has been risen, and has left, but he'll what? He will come again. Matthew wants none of that. Jesus never left. He's still with us, okay? We're assured. It's central to Matthew. Remember in the Gospel of Matthew, we open that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, literally. Uh, God is with us. And then the gospel ends with, I am with you. How long am I with you? Always. Never left you. So it gets interesting. It's just this the, those differences in language. In Luke and John, we have Jesus gone, and we have the Holy Spirit come. Matthew just understands it differently. He understands Jesus never left. So what we would call, what Luke would call the Holy Spirit, Jesus, uh, Matthew would call what? Jesus. And it's, it's the spirit of Jesus. So just a subtle understanding of this. So next week, we want to turn to Luke and some new material. We have the empty tomb story again, third variation, but Peter at the tomb. Have we had that so far? New. Maya story? Fascinating. Okay. And we have the appearances of the disciples in Jerusalem, and we'll just deal briefly with the ascension story in Luke. So next w- week, four more stories to start. For now, 